Thank you all for being here. We are going to jump in. We're going to start in Romans 6. So if you go to Romans 6, we're going to look at the first six verses. Romans 6 is where we'll start. I'm just going to do a quick overview of what we're going to talk about this morning. So past couple weeks, we've gone over two different things. We've talked about the will and sovereignty of God. We've also gone over the topic of rest and work and labor, the balance between those. In other words, how much should you rest? How much should you work? Why work is important? How to make the most of your time? How to do what the Bible calls redeeming the time? And today we're just going to go over uh, what's called an elementary principle, which is essentially one of the basics of the Christian faith or the biblical faith. And there are six of them. Would anyone like to volunteer to name what the six elementary principles are? Go for it, Jacob. Repentance from dead works, faith towards Jesus Christ our God, doctrine of baptisms. Um, so that's the fourth one. Doctrine of baptisms, and then after that is the, no, that's not yet. Laying out of hands. Laying out of hands, eternal, eternal, no, resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Yep, there you go. Yep, those are the six elementary principles. So if you want to have an overview of what a person needs to learn first when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is those six things, which is really good. Yes, I'll repeat them. So uh, repentance from dead works. Faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are the six elementary principles. Those are the elementary school class topics of following Jesus. So as an example, if you lead somebody to Christ and you want to disciple them, they got to get those six things down first before you can move on to other things. And specifically, Paul actually says in Hebrews 5, that moving on from those elementary principles into what he says is called going on to perfection requires that a person be able to teach those six things as well, which means if you want to know if you're ready to move on to other stuff, make sure you're able to articulate those six things to another person. And that's when you know, yeah, Hebrews, the end of Hebrews five, yeah, into Hebrews six, the reference. No. Oh, the six things. Yeah. Um, it's Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. So if you'd like to have the reference that lists it, it's that one, but I'll list it again, yeah. Um, repentance from dead works, so you could just put repentance. Faith toward God, but faith. Baptisms. Laying on of hands. Resurrection from the dead. And eternal judgment. So we have gone over extensively repentance. We spent quite a bit of time on faith as well and what that means, the balance between repentance and faith, especially those two, repentance and faith, are the first two things you're going to want to go over with anybody when it comes to following Jesus. And then we've discussed baptisms quite a bit over the course of time in about a past, past year. We've addressed laying on of hands, at least briefly. That's a little bit more simple topic. We're going to go over resurrection from the dead specifically because this is something we haven't got in, gotten into a ton, but it is worth time to dig into it because there's at least one whole chapter in the Bible in the New Testament that discusses it extensively, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to see how far we get into it, but 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be the substance of it, but we're going to start in Romans 6 just to make sure we get an overview here. 
So I will start by saying, we're going to read verses 4 through 6 of Romans chapter 6. Um, but before I read that, just as an overview, I'm going to use or employ what's called, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a form of public speaking, which is essentially the way that uh, I've heard it said is, first thing you do when you're going to deliver a speech is you tell somebody what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. So, so what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you, and then tell you what I told you at the end, okay? So, so, so we're going to go over, it's basically there's, there's three facets to resurrection from the dead. There's spiritual resurrection that is yours. There's Jesus's physical resurrection when he physically rose from the dead. And then there's your physical resurrection. The order in which they have taken place was first, Jesus rose from the dead. Second, it says you were raised with him spiritually and being born again and baptized into him. And the third happens at the end, end of this age, end of time, which is your physical resurrection at the second coming. Those are the three things we're going to discuss. Romans 6 addresses Christ rising from the dead and how it has affected spiritual resurrection. That's what we're going to talk about first. So that's Romans 6. So we'll start in verse 4 of Romans 6. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. This is water baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, there's a lot more to this, but I'm just going to have a skip down to verse 11 because this is where he states a conclusion. Likewise, you also alongside Christ. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So read that, understand that in tandem with verse six. He says, or excuse me, not verse six, um, verse, the end of verse four. Christ was raised from the dead. So we also should walk in newness of life. So. You being raised with him and dead to sin is supposed to have an effect on your life, which is newness of life, right? So you've got the old life, then there's new life. So then what is that new life? That's what verses five and six talk about. Verse five, Romans six says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So newness of life means that you would be no longer what? Slave of sin. So being a slave to sin, according to Jesus in John chapter 8, Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave of sin, which is very interesting because we've all sinned. We've all committed sin. So when Jesus said that, what he wasn't saying was that we're all hopelessly slaves of sin forever. What he was saying is that the very fact that you have sinned demonstrates that you're a slave to it. Romans 5 adds that it's because we continue to sin that we know that we're slaves to it. So from the moment that a baby is born to this world and grows, just when a baby arrives, a child arrives at the age where he or she is old enough to sin intentionally. 
it's an indication that it's in our nature, all of us, to sin. It's in all of our nature. And so that identifies that we're a slave to it. You don't have to be taught to sin. Your parents don't have to train you to sin. They have to train you not to. Because it's in our nature to sin, right? So Jesus says we're all slaves of it. So the newness of life is that you're freed from sin so that you're no longer a slave of it. That is new life. This doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It simply means you're no longer ruled or controlled by sin. You're given the freedom and the power to act against sin and do what is right. And that is part of what this newness of life means. So in summary, spiritual resurrection is being raised out of the deadness of sin into a new life. And new life is being freed from sin. That's what new life is. Amen? So, now a few other references. We're not going to turn to these. I'm just going to have you write them down, but I'll quote them to you so that you know what they say. Um, So Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new man who is uh, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is talking about the new man as in who you are now that you're in Christ. And it says this new man was created according to God, which essentially means like God, consistent with God, in true righteousness and holiness. The part of you that gets born again when you're saved is what, what part of you? The spirit, right? Your spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 3, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So your spirit is the new man. And that new man is created according to, which means like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in what way is your new man like God? It says in true righteousness and holiness. So your spirit is righteous and holy and truly holy, which means that it is holy in the sense that God is holy, truly holy. That's what it means. So then you've got Hebrews 12. Uh, You can write down verses 22 through 23. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 23. And that says, in the new Jerusalem or heaven, uh, if we go to the next verse, verse 23, it says it is comprised of the spirits of just men made perfect. So in heaven right now, those that die and pass away, their spirits go to heaven and it identifies their spirits as perfect because the only way you actually end up going to heaven is if you've been born again. And if you're born again, your new man is truly righteous and holy. So this is one verse that simply identifies that our spirits are perfect. And that's why we actually go to heaven uh, when we die. Last reference is 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. And that one says that if you're joined to the Lord, you are one spirit with him. So, in total, this means you've got three things that identify what being spiritually resurrected means. That is, your spirit is perfect, truly righteous and holy, and one with Christ himself. That's what makes you a child of God. That's what makes you born again. And that is truly who you are in Christ. That is your identity. And it's detached from what you do in the flesh, simply in the sense that 
even while we make mistakes, it doesn't change who you are in spirit. There is nothing you do in the flesh that has any power over who you are in spirit, unless you continue in sin to the point where you end up denying your own salvation. And that's why sin is dangerous, but there is no sin that can change who you are in spirit. And that's why we praise God for that. Amen. So that's spiritual resurrection. That happens because Christ rose again. And when you put your faith in him, you appropriate his resurrection spiritually. Your spirit is perfect, holy, and one with Christ. Amen. Okay. So now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is where we get into the second or the, the second and third aspects of resurrection from the dead, which who would like to name those to me if you remember? So in resurrection from the dead, there's your spiritual resurrection. And then what are the other two? Jesus' physical, physical resurrection. And then what? And then ours. Right. So 1 Corinthians 15 addresses both. So we're just going to start in verse 1. There's basically nine different sections to 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if we're going to get through all of them, um, but it's a lot of verses. It's one of the longer chapters in the New Testament, so we'll see how far we get. Verse 1, Paul begins saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the word or the gospel which was preached to us, we stand in it, and that word saves us if we hold fast that word. Otherwise, it says we will have believed in vain. So this is... Very important verse because it's one of the more rare conditional verses you will find in the New Testament. In other words, it tells you there's something that you have to do to make sure you stay saved. And it's essentially trying to say that if the gospel ever changes and we start preaching a different gospel or a false gospel, people will believe in vain. And so this is why uh, if you take, you know, especially something like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, Mormonism, those are versions of the gospel that profess the name of Christ, but it's a different message. It's been changed. So those that believe under those doctrines believe on the name of Jesus in vain. They confess that Christ died for them and they confess that it's by that sacrifice they're saved. But the message itself, the doctrine in which they stand cannot save them. Therefore they're believing in vain. So it's very important to remember that, that it's, it's, it's very important that the word or the gospel that we believe is pure, that it's what it was originally intended to be. And as long as you hold fast to that word, you're saved by it. So that's the first, first principle he states. So then he gets into a summary of what that gospel is. Verse three, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So you have to believe that Christ died that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So you must believe that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. Verse five, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, which means if these people saw him, he physically rose again from the dead. And in the accounts of the gospels, it says that they touched, touched him physically. They felt the, the holes that were still in his hands and the hole that was still in his side. It was a physical resurrection and they saw him. That has to be acknowledged. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And the last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Okay. So that is especially verses three through eight is considered the earliest, one of the earliest, if not the earliest creed that was taken up by the church. You can, if you, if you date just verses three through eight, records of that passages, passage of scripture goes all the way back to as early as AD 33 to AD 35, which is within a couple years after Christ died and rose again. So this is as far as a historical fact goes, this is indisputably an example that at the time that Christ himself lived and died and rose again, we have record that people believed that he physically died, was physically buried, and physically rose again. And so it's just a really powerful example of that just for historical reliability. That's just a side note I wanted to give you guys. Okay. Do we have any questions on that first passage we read before we move on? And make sure you have a microphone before you ask the question for the sake of the recording so everyone hears you. Do you know what your question is yet? You didn't have one? You put your finger up. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Over here. Wondering back at Romans 6 where it says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Um, how do we... How can we be confident that that's water baptism and not spiritual, like it says we've been raised with him? How important is, if it is water baptism, isn't it critical that we be water baptized? The challenge that I would offer you guys in regards to that question is look up all the places in the New Testament where the word baptism is used and you will find that it's used first in regards to water baptism and every time afterwards it's used there's always some kind of reference at least within the context to water baptism and even even if you say that it's not water baptism in Romans 6 it has to include it simply because of other places in the New Testament that talk about it for example in Colossians chapter 2 it says that you are buried with Christ by a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of, of the flesh through baptism. And then you're raised with him through faith in the working of God. And that tells us that when you are baptized in water, it was considered the moment when you put your faith in Jesus to die with him and rise with him. 
And even in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that the cleansing of the earth and water in Noah's flood is an antitype which now saves us. And it says baptism. But then it says not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So those two verses in tandem, essentially what it tells us is that the cleansing of water is something that takes place spiritually in your conscience. 1 Peter 3 says the answer of your conscience towards God but it uses the cleansing of water as the illustration. And the only experience we have of a cleansing of water physically is water baptism. So overall, we can essentially say that Romans 6 and those verses teaches that the cleansing of your inner man is what saves you. And that cleansing of the inner man is represented in baptism of water, which is what 1 Peter 3 says. So, either way, it's really about what happens on the inside, but that's intended to be initiated through water baptism. But if somebody, let's say, you know, they're, they're on their deathbed, they don't have a chance to be baptized in water, and they get saved and come to Christ, no problem, because what happens in their inner man is what's most important anyway. So, of course, there's mercy if you didn't have a chance to be water baptized. But if a person has the opportunity to be water baptized, they believe in it, and know its importance that they'll do it. And that's considered a part of what, a part of what saves us. So does that answer that question? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so we'll jump in. Now, any more questions before we move on? Okay. So let's go to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Okay. The statement I will make to just summarize this whole thing is that the Christian faith is useless if Christ did not physically rise from the dead. Absolutely useless. So if there is any sense in which a gospel is preached that Christ's resurrection was somehow not physical in any way, shape, or form, then it's a false gospel, and it's completely useless to believe in it. Because we'll read about this later. The purpose of Christ's death and resurrection and our redemption from sin is so that we could receive a new body and live forever, eternally, with God. And that requires Christ physically rising from the dead. If we don't have that, our faith is useless. So this is actually a good passage to use as a challenge when it comes to people that are not sure of the gospel. So if you want to give somebody some food for thought and you're sharing Christ with them, just simply tell them, hey, the Bible offers us a challenge which says if Christ is not risen, then our faith is futile. Right there you have an example where the Bible says if you can prove that Christ didn't physically rise from the dead, then it's absolutely useless to be a follower of Jesus. So that's really good to share with other people. But also, if you don't know for certain for whatever reason, that Christ physically rose from the dead, it's a good thing to look into because that's part of what makes your faith not futile. 
If you're preaching the gospel and someone asks you, how can you know for sure what would your response be? I don't know. What would your response be? <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're witnesses, so that's a great comment. So the Bible says that we're witnesses. Uh, Romans 1 verse 8 says, you shall be my witnesses after you, the, the power of the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be, be my witness. Acts 1. Acts. A-C-T-S. Acts 1. Did I say Romans? Did I really? Wow. My brain said Acts. Okay. Acts. Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So, this is interesting. Some people will say, hey, only the 12 apostles were witnesses. But wait a second. Why would he say they would be witnesses to the end of the earth when they died before they reached the end of the earth? They hardly made it out of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So the only way that verse makes sense is if witnesses had to keep living until we reached the end of the earth. And we're still working on that. So... Obviously, there has to be people who are witnesses beyond just the 12 apostles. So, to Jacob's question, what makes us witnesses if we didn't physically see it? Who has an idea? It's connected to Romans 6. Romans 6 is a hint. Yeah, the new life. Yeah, exactly. What happens in spirit produces, through your faith, a new life. And that new life is that you're no longer what? A slave to sin. So the number one thing that's supposed to reveal that we are witnesses of Christ's resurrection is that we have been freed from sin and we live no longer in it. That's why it's such a destructive thing to live as a hypocrite while professing the name of Jesus because you're denying Christ's resurrection when you do that. So it's, it's real serious. So to, Yeah. Yeah, Paul, exactly. Paul's transformation from being a persecutor of the church to a completely different man makes him uh, a witness of Christ. And he didn't, he didn't actually see Christ physically the way that the other 12 apostles did, but he had a vision and it just says he saw a light and heard a voice. So he had a vision of Jesus. Um, so overall, that just simply tells us that it's being free from sin that testifies of resurrection, and that's what makes you a witness. So you got to ask yourself, do I have a new life or not? If I don't, I'm not a witness of his resurrection yet. If I do, that makes me a witness, and I'm living evidence of Christ being risen from the dead. So that would be, I would say, the number one thing that testifies of Christ's resurrection, and plus you also have signs, wonders, and miracles, and the gift of the Holy Spirit and all that. That also is part of it. But number one, Romans 6 says, is your new life. Your new life is the number one thing. Amen? You can do as many miracles as you want. But if you're still the same wretched sinner you were before, what does that say? All right? Okay. So, he's trying to prove here. Christ is physically resurrection and faith is useless without physical resurrection. Now, let's start in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love this verse. So, who can tell me what first fruits means in this context? You might have to put, there's a button on the bottom. There's like a little gray button. There you go. 
Can you back up to 16? Because I, I think I know what it means by saying fallen asleep, but I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so then I think moving forward to 20, it'll be clear. Yeah. So fallen asleep simply means that they died. That it's verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep, people who've died, have perished. Meaning, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then all the people that have died until this day have gone to hell. That's what perished means. Does that make sense? Okay. Correct. Right. Fallen asleep is physical death. Perished is uh, spiritual death. So he's saying if they died, they fell asleep. If Christ is not risen, then they also went to hell, which is that they perished. Is this an on-off thing? It is. You can leave it on. You can leave it on. It's off now. But. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, I should actually comment in verse 19 quick as well before we get into 20. Um, if, this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This is a great verse. I use this a lot when it comes to explaining the gospel to people because it essentially teaches that if the Christian faith is only a religious coping mechanism for this life, it's completely useless. So, it is better... So if, if, okay, I'll say it this way. If religion in general is just about making us better citizens in this life, then Christianity is the worst of those religions to do that. So if you're going to believe in a religion for a better life here, Christianity is the wrong choice. You, it's probably better to be a Buddhist, to be honest. Because there's a lot of good life principles in a lot of other religions. And Christianity is not meant to just help you have a better life now. It's not what it's for. So he says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, of all men, we're the most pitiable. So, therefore, believing on the name of Jesus Christ is more about the next life than it is about this one. This life the Bible says, is a pilgrimage. We're passing through it to accomplish things in the will of God in it, but for eternity. That's why we believe. Uh, 1 Peter 2.11 is where that is. Yep. Um, yes. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. So, if you want to believe in Jesus for a better life now, don't choose Jesus. Choose something else. But if you're seeing eternally, then believing on the name of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because it's the only words for everlasting life, Jesus said. Only Christ has the words of everlasting life. Amen? Okay. So, then you get into verse 20. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So let's go back to that question. What does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits? First one to what? First one to rise from the dead. Physically or spiritually? Both. Yeah. We have already, we've already touched on the spiritual. That we've already received. The physical is what we're waiting for, right? So if Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's the first one to physically rise from the dead. 
and we're going to rise from the dead just as he has. That's what it means that he's the first fruits. Verse 21, he says, For since by man came death, as in Adam, by man, capital M, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So when are we going to physically rise from the dead? At his coming. Just a quick question I've gotten in the past with, on verse 21 where it talks about that Jesus is the first fruits. A lot of people believe that that means that that was the first of God's created beings uh, rather than that Jesus was actually, you know, part of the Godhead. How would you respond to that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's bogus, number one. <laughs> <laughs> but here's why it is, you know. Um, so in context, if you're just talking about that verse, in context, this is obviously talking about a physical resurrection. But one thing that it's important for people to know that can be confusing is what we call the incarnation, which is Christ becoming flesh. It is easy to think that Christ is a created being if you imagine his beginning as being when he was physically born into this world. But John chapter 1, I think, has the clearest answer. So John chapter 1, in the very first verse, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, if you go to verse 14 of that same chapter, John 1 verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, he was the only begotten of the Father. Who is the only begotten of the Father? Jesus. So the Word is who? Jesus. And Jesus is the Word. So the Word existed forever. What happened 2,000 years ago was it became flesh. So Christ's existence as the Word is eternal. He became flesh at a specific point in time. And that was 2,000 years ago. So, biblically speaking, Jesus didn't actually have a physical body until 2,000 years ago. Because that's when he became flesh, was that moment. Before that, he was the Word of God. Yes? Does Jesus still have a physical body in eternity now? Yes, he does. And he always will, which I think is... So cool. Yeah, because like, ah, I just love this because it's Jesus was the word eternally and he decided he wanted to become a man and he's going to stay that way forever. To me, that's just so cool. So cool. Um, yeah. Twenty three. Twenty three. Yep. So he says, what does this mean? Each one in his own order. He states what the order is. He's saying that the order is that Christ was the first to rise from the dead. Second, those who are Christ at his coming. So the order is that Christ rose from the dead first, we rise from the dead second. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, at his coming. So, here's what he says. This is a little bit of end times theology here. That's just, it's basic but important to understand. 
when Christ comes, he says, verse 24, then comes the end. And what happens in the end? When he, referring to Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So there's a lot of he and hims in there. Uh, we'll, we'll address what all those mean. Um, okay. So Christ is the first to rise from the dead. We're second. That happens at his coming. Take the microphone if this is an extended question. Yes. So I, I just want to be clear on this because I'm confused. <laughs> so until his coming, if I die tomorrow, I will not be in heaven. What, did, he, what did Hebrews 12, 23 say? We, we addressed it earlier. Heaven is full of angels, God, yes, and what was the third thing it said? Spirits? The spirits of just, yeah, saints, people, just people, just men, made perfect. So here's the difference. If, you, if any of us were to die today, when we go to heaven, we go there as a spirit, but we don't have a body yet. That's what happens. Physical resurrection mean God, God makes you a new body and then joins it with your spirit. That's what happens at the second coming. We'll get into that. I think, that's, I think that that means that he destroyed death because we are going to get those new bodies, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. So the, the question that Earl just asked is, when it says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, is that spiritual or physical? Just like there is spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection, there's also spiritual and physical death. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, you shall surely die. When they ate of the forbidden fruit, they didn't just keel over dead physically. They spiritually died. Right, Romans 5 talks about this. It says that death was that condemnation came to all men. So, the last enemy that will be, future tense, is death. That's talking about physical death. Because when Christ died and rose again, and you were born again, what was immediately defeated was spiritual death. Because you're no longer under condemnation, but under grace. So if you're no longer under condemnation, then you're no longer under death, spiritually speaking. So that's why reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Is what Romans 6 says. So spiritually speaking, you are presently not dead. You're alive. Physically, you technically are still dead. We're going to, Romans 8 verse 10 actually says that the body is dead because of sin. So physical death is not just considered like when you physically keel over. It actually means that in your present state, your physical body is dead. Romans 8 says. And that's why we have the ability to you know, age, grow gray hair, wrinkles, get sick. All that stuff is, happens because your body technically is dead right now. And it's progressively dying, technically. That's what that means. 
So the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Is saying that physical death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Okay. Did you have a question? No, you just, okay. Okay. So happens at the end when Christ comes. Then it says, verse 24, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. I won't get into this in detail, but Christ's kingdom overtakes all other kingdoms. Then it says he takes that kingdom as his spoils of war, if you will, then delivers it to God the Father and says, this is your reward, God's reward for the work that he accomplished in Christ. Then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He'll put all things under his feet. The Ephesians 1 says God put all things under Jesus' feet. Then it says, verse 28, when all things are made subject to him, as in to, the, to Christ, then the Son, Christ himself, will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is a really great verse, just for a simple fact of teaching, that even Christ himself, who is God, is submitted to the Father. Submission is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Even in what you might call the Trinity, there is submission. Jesus is submitted to the Father. And he and the Father both believe in an order of authority. And even the Son of God himself observes that. So what's happening right now is, just to put it in kind of an illustration that's easier to understand, imagine Christ as this military general, and he was sent out by a king. And the king told this military general, go and conquer this land and don't return until you finish the job. That's what Jesus essentially is doing. He came and he died so that progressively all enemies would be put under his feet, that everything in opposition to him would be resubmitted to him. When you give your life to Christ, you're going from an enemy of God, an enemy of Jesus, to then being submitted to him. And Christ has accomplished victory over the sin that was in your life. So now you've been spiritually, if that makes sense, your sin has been conquered. So then what we're doing when we expand the kingdom we actually become soldiers in the army of the Lord, the Bible says. We're called good soldiers in, in uh, 2 Timothy. One moment. So we go and also preach the gospel. We see people come to the faith and born again. And that's actually Christ's continuing work of conquering sin all over the world. And before Christ can deliver this con conquered kingdom to the Father to finish his work as that military general... He has to destroy every last enemy. And the last one he will destroy is physical death. But while we're expanding the kingdom, what we're literally doing is a, it's, it's a spiritual military conquest. That's what this is. Not a physical one. Otherwise, you get the crusades and all that stuff, which we don't do anymore. <laughs> we're never supposed to do that. It's a spiritual conquering. That's what it means to expand the kingdom then it'll be delivered to the Father. So what, what was your, your question? You mentioned in, um, I think it was verse 23 or 24, basically Jesus' kingdom is delivered, and then he delivers like the spoils to God reward mm -hmm. as his reward. One, how did you get that out of that verse? Because I'm not really seeing it. And two, what's the reward? Is it his believers who he has died for? It's, it's people, yeah. 
Yeah. Like Ephesians 1 says, the uh, hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, God's inheritance in the saints. So the, the saints are his inheritance, his reward. That, the, we're the spoils, essentially. You know how when Jesus said, uh, how can you plunder the strong man's house until you first blind the, bind the strong man? You're, he's plundering the house of the devil. And the spoils are us. Because we were in the kingdom of darkness. Then we come to the light. So the whole, where did I get that from? Um, it says in 25, that Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Then everything put under him is delivered to God the Father. So what's delivered is the enemies that have now been submitted to Christ. And in Colossians 1, in verse 21, it says, You who once were enemies in your mind by wicked works, now have been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. So, we once were enemies, then we were reconciled. So that means we were an enemy, we were put under his feet, which is submitted and reconciled to God, and then were delivered the, to the Father as his inheritance. Colossians 1.21. Yeah. So, you, it's, it's, sometimes it seems a little bit negative to look at it this way, but it's spiritual, not physical. I mean, it's actually physical as well in the end when he returns. But as a believer, you are or were an enemy, you became a conquered enemy, and now you're a child of God. That's what has happened. When you get saved, that's what takes place physically. You were an enemy that was reconciled to the Father. You were never, really, never originally intended to be an enemy, but we, we became an enemy through sin. We thought like an enemy. That's what Colossians 1.21 is saying. It was in our mind. We thought like enemies of God, but we were reconciled. So that's where I got that from, Jacob. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all things will be subject, it's the Son himself will be subject. Okay, so then, we will start in verse 29. This part's a little bit, a little bit out of the ordinary, but I'll uh, just explain it briefly. Otherwise, what will, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? This is a reference to people in Paul's day who believed that if somebody died before they could be baptized, you could stand in proxy for them and be baptized for them, which is not taught anywhere in the Bible. Paul is not saying you can be baptized for dead people. He's simply saying there are those, they, who did do this, and he's saying it doesn't make sense. Right. This is one of the verses that they use to affirm it. Yeah. It's, it's taught in other books in Mormonism, yes, but this is, it's not what it's saying. It's just, Paul is saying there are people who are doing this, but this is not taught anywhere in the Bible. You can only be baptized if you have your own faith. But that's, yeah. this is where the Mormons get. One of the verses, yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? So he's saying, why, why willingly yield ourselves to persecution for our faith if we could just simply deny Christ and avoid persecution? He says, verse 31, I affirm 
by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. He's saying, I'm laying down my life daily for this message. Why do I do that? If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Because if the dead do not rise and let us eat and drink for tomorrow, we die. He's saying me enduring all of this persecution for the sake of my faith. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there's, I might as well just party and YOLO till I die. That's what he's saying. There's no reason for us to live and walk as followers of Jesus submitted to the word and enduring persecution if Christ didn't rise from the dead. No reason to do that. So he says, verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So he says basically three things. Don't be deceived. The evil company he's talking about in context is the people that will start to say either that Christ is not risen or who will basically say you can party all you want. That's what he's talking about. Don't be deceived. That kind of company, evil company, corrupts good habits. He says if you believe in Christ's resurrection, then you should awake to righteousness. Do not sin. If you believe that Christ is risen physically, the way that you demonstrate that you believe in that resurrection is by living in righteousness. It is, remember, it is your spiritual resurrection that bears witness to Christ's physical resurrection. So without living in righteousness, there is no evidence in your life of his physical resurrection. Therefore, that's why I mentioned earlier, hypocrisy or living in sin while professing the name of Jesus is to act against the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's an offense to the resurrection of Christ. So he says, first thing, guys, we should do if we're going to say we believe that Christ has risen from the dead is awake to righteousness. Live a righteous life. Don't go about sinning. That's how you demonstrate and live out the fact that you believe in his resurrection. So that's what that's about. Um, I speak this to your shame. That third thing is he's simply saying in Corinth, there was a lot of people that started to drift off into this doctrine that either the Christ didn't rise from the dead physically is too far fetched. Maybe it was spiritual. Maybe it wasn't physical. And then they started to get into this, this sin, this partying. And he's saying, Hey, I'm saying this to your shame. Cause there's a lot of people that drifted off into that. And he's trying to warn them. So that's what this is about. So don't keep company. He's saying with people that are uh, purporting these doctrines. Okay. Any questions about any of that so far? Okay. So verse 35 This is my favorite part. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So this is kind of, he's devil's advocate. He's basically saying like, this doesn't make any sense. People turn back to dust when they die. If they're in the ground for long enough. How in the world does God give them a new body out of that? He's saying, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. 
There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, talking about Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So cool. Love that part. Okay. So we'll break this down. He describes your present physical body as the seed that's sown to sprout and produce this new body. Which is why martyrdom especially is such a powerful thing. Whether you're talking about physical martyrdom or simply laying down your life, giving yourself as a sacrifice for the service of God. What you're doing is saying, I believe that my body is a seed that's sown. My life is a seed that's sown. And it's not made alive unless it dies. And this is why we believe that no man can be a disciple of Jesus unless he denies himself, Jesus said, right? You have to deny yourself, lay down your life in order for it to produce new life, both spiritually and physically. That's why if a person loves this present life, they've decided, I just want to keep this lesser body. I want to keep this lesser existence, and they'll perish in their sin. But if we believe and desire a resurrection, a physical one, then what we do to produce that is lay down our lives. So we're saying, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to lay it down, even to the point that Jesus said, as though you hate this present life. And the very act of that self-sacrifice becomes the planted seed that results in that physical resurrection later. And that's what this is trying to say. So the only way you can be raised to new life is if, is if you lay down this present one. That's what this is teaching. Yeah. Um, Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. In verse 33, he says, um, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Um, okay. So that's the seed plant analogy. Then he says there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Remember that the Bible says Christ, the first fruits of those uh, who will be resurrected at his coming. In 1 John 3, it says that uh, when he comes, we'll be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. So we're actually told that our physical body will be just like the one that he had when he rose again from the dead. Now, this is interesting because it, you, you cannot naturally comprehend this. He says there's a difference. There's a terrestrial body and a celestial body, but he says they're both bodies. And he also says there's a corruptible and incorruptible, one that's weak, one that's powerful, one that's spiritual, and one that's natural. I've always found it so baffling how you could have an angel 
that the Bible says is a ministering spirit that you can't see, but yet they can choose to physically appear and be as an actual person. They look like an actual person, talk like an actual person. You can touch them as an actual person, and yet they can disappear. That is a celestial body or a spiritual body. It is physical, but also spiritual. It has spiritual power, but has physical properties at the same time. And that's why Jesus could not be in a room and there's locked doors and just randomly appear in there, walk through walls, whatever. I don't, you can't physically wrap your mind around this, but it's essentially trying to say that that's called a celestial body or a spiritual body. And that's what we receive at Christ's coming. So it, it has essentially no limitation, but it is outside of the laws of physics that we are currently familiar with. So you can't, you can't put it in a test tube. You can't observe it. It is spiritual. But he's just simply trying to say, hey, it's a different kind of body than, than the one you have now. It's going to be just like Jesus' body, and it's going to be really cool. <laughs> that's essentially what he's saying. So that's the just encouraging nature of that. Then he says, just like you are currently of the man of dust, you'll also be like the heavenly man, and you'll bear the image of the heavenly man. So right now, the body that you have is the one that Adam had after he sinned. And the one that you'll receive is the one that Jesus now has, which he received after he rose again from the dead. So if you want to know what your new body is going to be like, just look at the 40 days after Jesus rose again from the dead where he interacted with his disciples. It gives you just a couple examples of what it's like. So that's just an interesting study you could get into. Okay, so then in verse 50, do we have any questions so far? It was most likely, I mean the Bible doesn't say exactly, but most likely it would have been similar to the one that Jesus had post-resurrection. Because you have to, he started as perfect, and he could walk with God, and then he lost that. So it was a physical body, but... Maybe, maybe. All, all the Bible says is we'll get the body that Jesus had after his resurrection. We're not given details about what Adam's body was like, you know. But. Okay. Did you have something to say? Well, kind of a silly question, but is there going to be um, male and female? In heaven? Or Yeah, or is that, because it, Jesus said there will not be marrying in heaven. Right. But I think you just answered it by answering him maybe that we just don't know. Yeah, I think we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, Adam and Eve were made before sin. So male and female pre-existed the fall of man. So it, it only makes sense that male and female are going to continue to exist. It doesn't make sense to me that God would somehow merge male and female. And that doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I don't know. And the Bible, the Bible makes no evidence. It makes no, uh, doesn't address that or allude to that even. So I would say that male and female will continue to exist, yes. But the Bible says the reason why, reason why marriage won't exist is because we are eternally wedded to Christ. So he, Christ himself fulfills that longing to be married, if you will. So that by the time we get to heaven, we'll, we won't have any interest in marrying. So at least man and woman. It's not even going to be, I don't think it'll even come into our minds anymore. Um, and it fulfills that. And in fact, the fact that male and female will continue to exist maintains this eternal uh, proclamation of marriage between Christ and the church which I think is what's most important about it. So, Okay, so let's move forward. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, he's saying you can't go to heaven in the body that you have now. That's what he's saying. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
we shall not all sleep. In other words, not everyone's going to die. Some people are going to live to see the second coming. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, then this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So pause there for a moment. This is, uh, I'm not going to get into this in detail, but he's talking about what many call the rapture. It is a moment, he says, at the last trumpet, happens in the twinkling of an eye, and you'll be changed. And he says, the people that live until that day physically, the body that they are currently in will be instantly transformed, and the ones that have died beforehand, they will be raised out of the ground, however that looks. Basically, just like God made Adam from the dust of the earth, he's just going to remake you a new body out of the dirt, essentially. Um, and then, yeah, and then that will be the body that you receive, and your, the spirit that's in heaven will join with that body that God creates out of the ground. And in First uh, Thessalonians 5 and 3, it mentions how Christ will return with his saints. So when Christ comes, everybody who's in heaven right now, when Christ returns, he's going to bring all the people in heaven with him. And as their spirits with Christ are descending from heaven, he makes them a new body and joins them together. And that's, you know, yeah, <laughs> bam, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's how it happens. So you said that's after. So we get our glorified bodies in a twinkling after the trumpet, which is when? At his coming. Which is when? Great question. This isn't, isn't the most important of topics. I think it's worth consideration, but he's basically referencing what we call post-tribulation rapture. There's a difference, and I, I, I have a hard time reconciling how this doctrine became popular, um, a, a pre-tribulation rapture, because he makes it very clear this happens at Christ's coming, his second coming. That's when the last trumpet is, and that's when we're changed, when we're raptured. Now, if you look at how Jesus said this, Matthew 24, he said, the trumpet will sound, or the last, the, the trumpet of God will sound. Then he says, or excuse me, he says, after the tribulation of those days, the trumpet will sound, and the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and will return, and do his thing, essentially. And it says that's after the tribulation. And according to this, the last trumpet and his second coming is the same moment as when our bodies are changed and we're, you know, quote unquote raptured. So that seems pretty, pretty, <laughs> seems pretty clear to me. I, I, I'm, I'm very serious. I actually don't know how the pre-tribulation rapture even became a thing. It doesn't make sense to me, biblically. But don't get your undies in a bundle over it, as my dad would say. Um, <laughs> basically, means don't worry about it too much because the point is that we believe in Jesus, we believe his word, are strong in faith, and whenever the rapture happens, I'm going. That's about all that matters. Um, but we are told that it's at his coming, coming at the last trumpet, which is after the tribulation of those days. Um, so...
I ask a lot, but okay. <laughs> That's good. That's tribulation, good. meaning just the chaos of today, or the tribulation, meaning that given day of what's about to happen, as in you're going here and you're coming here. Sure. That's what the tribulation is? That's called the great tribulation. Yeah. Yeah. Specific point in time. Yeah. So yes, tribulation can also refer to general hardship. But in Matthew 24, when Jesus says after the tribulation of those days, he's talking about the seven-year tribulation. Uh, the great tribulation, it's called. After that, that's when he returns. Does that make sense? I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Now you know. So you said, don't worry. Well, yes, if you, if you do what it says in the verse 2 of 15, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you. So if you're 100% in Christ, you don't have to worry about God's wrath pouring out on you. The only thing we have to worry about is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just wanted to go this direction, I can tell. <laughs> I don't want to get into an extreme detail, but um, does anyone, this is just a question, I'll, I'll talk about this if, if it's deemed important, but do any of you have a hard time understanding how it would make sense practically for us to go through the tribulation by show of hands? Like you're like, I don't know how that would work. Yeah. Adding one thing that people stand on for the pre-trib. Mm-hmm is this 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says here, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So pre-trib people believe that as born-again Christians, we are not going to suffer the wrath to come. We won't. We won't. And he, Okay, so here's the thing. You, it is possible to go through the tribulation and not suffer the wrath of God. And here's how it works. The, the very end is comprised of God's work on earth and the work of the Antichrist. The Bible says that what God does during the tribulation is brings about plagues and destruction that is his wrath upon the unbelieving world. But what the Antichrist does is, according to Daniel... He destroys, breaks, and shatters the power of the holy people, the saints. So what the Antichrist does is he attacks the church. What God does is he attacks the unbelieving world and defeats the Antichrist at the very end. So God delivers us from his wrath, but the Antichrist is not God's wrath. That's the devil's wrath, which I can guarantee you the devil's wrath is far, 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 far less than God's wrath. <laughs> Uh, for example, like King David, when uh, he sinned in 2 Samuel and God gave him three choices. Uh, famine for three months, plague for three days, or defeat by your enemies. Or plague, famine for three years, defeat, being defeated by your enemies for three months, or plague for three days. And he said, I'm going to choose the plague for three days because the mercies of God are much greater than the mercies of my enemies. Talking about being defeated by his enemies. So he says, I'd rather choose, I'd rather choose what God does, you know? So he was trying to say that, Hey, like I, God's mercy is going to be far, far greater. And so when you're talking about the tribulation, what you're dealing with is God, there's no more grace during the great tribulation. Like it, it's over at that point. And so 
what God does is pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world. But nowhere in the Bible are we told we're delivered from persecution. Nowhere. So what believers suffer during the tribulation is persecution. What the unbelieving world suffers is the wrath of God. And the way that this looks practically is just look at the ten plagues of Egypt. God poured out his wrath on the Egyptians, but in the land of Goshen, where the believers were, the plagues didn't touch them. They're in the land of Egypt, they're in the world, but God's wrath didn't touch the Israelites, it only touched the Egyptians. So that's how it's going to work, essentially, in the, in the Great Tribulation. We'll suffer persecution, we'll be fleeing, most likely hiding from persecution, trying to get as many people who still have the chance to be saved as possible, that would be those who don't take the mark of the beast. And that will be our labor. The unbelieving world is going to be going through much, 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 much worse. And the only sense in which that's going to affect us is essentially the uh, economy, really. Yeah, collateral damage, right. But was there somebody's hand? Did you have a question? Okay. <laughs> oh, you were? Okay, great, cool. Yeah, so, yeah, that First Thessalonians verse, he delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Absolutely he does, but he doesn't deliver us from persecution. And if you like if you want to read about this like look look at Daniel chapters 9 through 11 uh, talks about the antichrist in a few different places and it literally says the power of the holy people will be completely shattered by the antichrist. So there's like the church is going to be completely crushed as far as persecution goes. And the only church that will exist will be completely living organism people who preach the gospel. There's going to be no institution of religion, no, no nothing. It'll just be people. Um, and so that does happen to us. That does happen. And some people think that, you know, that tribulation is about the people who get saved during the tribulation. And then, but the people that are raptured before it won't be there. But that doesn't make sense to me biblically. If God's going to make people who get saved through the tri in the tribulation go through that, I don't think there's any reason why we get to escape that. That doesn't make sense. Of course, he would want all of his saints to be present for that. I think to get people saved. Like, I want to be there because I'm thinking about how many people that will just be scared out of their minds and really, really want help from God, and I want to be there to help, help them find Jesus. That's my motive. I don't know about yours, but um, that's, I think, that's, I think, one of the reasons why I think we should be there. But overall, as far as preparation goes, this is not meant to be fear-inducing in the sense of, you know, causing you to lose your mind or your sanity or anything. This is just simply meaning make sure your faith is strong. Make sure you're grounded in the Word of God because that's the only thing that's going to carry you through this. Uh, and if your faith is strong, you'll make it through just fine. You won't have anything to worry about. Um, but most believers during the tribulation will be martyred for their faith. Most of them. So... If you are not prepared to die for what you believe, then technically, as far as the Bible is concerned, you haven't laid down your life for Christ at all yet. Because it says the body is sown in corruption. You, you give it over. You lay it down. And that actually is how you demonstrate your faith. And martyrdom is the test of that faith. And so that makes persecution during the tribulation one of the most powerful things the church will ever experience at the same time. So we have a, we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful, but also knowing that I think at face value, the Bible does say yes, that the church will go through the tribulation. So let's just finish this out. So verse 55, 
O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The sting of death is sin, is essentially saying that sin is what proves that the body is dead. Like Romans 8 verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. So the very fact that we sin and have the ability to sin means that this body is still corruptible. So the sting of death, what makes death sting is the fact that we sin. That's what he's saying. And the strength of sin is the law. So not only, it, so you're going to have the sting of death and sin, but if you don't want sin to be strengthened, don't live under the law. That's what he's trying to say. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So we have victory over sin in Christ, and we have victory over death when Christ comes, physical death, because death will be swallowed up in victory. Verse 58, this is the conclusion of the matter. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is the conclusion of the whole thing, which is kind of what I started getting at, that be steadfast, be immovable, and always abound in the work of the Lord. It doesn't say do some work for God. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding means always excelling, increasing, super abounding. It even means to be in excess. You have too much of God's work in your life, <laughs> which is impossible, but that's what the word means. You can never have too much of it. So the way it says, the way that you make sure that we arrive at this point in time where we're physically resurrected with Christ is that we're steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so if we connect this with what we've gone over the past couple weeks with making sure you're using your time well and balancing work and rest and all that, it simply means to make sure that you have a, a good balance of continuing your present physical life. In other words, just having healthy habits, not wasting yourself, but then also have the work of God in your life. How are you contributing to disciples being made, people coming to repentance? What is it in your life that is the work of the Lord? And so if, if you're really to summarize it, it's what makes a profitable and fruitful life is that you take care of yourself physically so that you don't die before your time. And that while you preserve that physical life, you do spiritual work, which is about disciples being made. Take care of yourself physically so you have more time to do what's spiritual. That is ultimately why we're here. And your, your physical body now is a seed. Remember that. You got to take care of this seed. If you let it go to waste, then there's really no point. So be always abounding in the work of the Lord, he says. So to add to this summary so that I finish what I said I was going to do, which is to tell you and then tell you what I told you, that whole thing. The point of all of this is that you know that you have been resurrected spiritually and you have a new life in Christ through your faith in him to be free from sin. Physical death has yet to be defeated. But it is coming. And the only way we know that it's coming is because Christ has physically risen from the dead. And when he comes, that's when you're going to receive it. Until then, abound in the work of the Lord, be steadfast and immovable. Amen?